Built around one of the finest carbon frames in the world, the Ultima is the definition of a world-class race bike, racking up win after win at the highest levels since its launch in 2004. With the 2023 Ultimate, Canyon have engineered the perfect balance in a road race bike without compromises. It's more capable than ever of attacking the high mountains, going full gas on the flat or sprinting for the win. It features full cable integration, wider tyre clearance than ever before and more pedal power by reinforcing the frame in key areas for increased stiffness and stability. And the weight has been kept to a minimum with big frame aerodynamic improvements from Canyon's partnership with aero experts Swiss side saving 10 watts at 45 kilometers an hour over the previous model. It's faster than ever before. The new Canyon Ultimate is available now at canyon.com. That's canyon.com. On this week's Cyclist Magazine podcast, I welcome to the podcast, Mr. Sam Bewley. Welcome back to another episode of Cyclist Magazine podcast. And it's my honor to welcome not only this week's guest, Sam Bewley, but more of a double honor to welcome back our exiled grand leader, James Bender. That's right. I am back. You can see me. No one else out there can but my hair looks great. It's got really long, actually, in the time that we've been away. Uh, but yeah, sorry to leave you in the lurch the other week because it was a bit like that, wasn't it, Anthony? I've, I've got many hats that I like to wear in this job, um, sometimes at jaunty angles and other times sort of like a magician in reverse where I disappear into them and I can't <laughs> get out to do podcasts. So yeah, thanks for taking that one over. I did listen to it. Uh, Sven, what a lovely, lovely fellow. I love chatting with Sven. Yeah, yeah. No, he's, yeah, good rapport. You're going to do me out of a job at this rate, mate. Um, but no, it's good to see you again. What have you been up to since we last spoke? Panic uh, researching <laughs> for Badlands. And we were just chatting about this off air and we chatted briefly. The more Instagram stories of people I look at who are competing in Badlands, the more worried I become and my blood pressure just rises going, oh, this isn't just like jumping into the rift unprepared and having a fun day out. That like T's and C's really are spine tingling. When you read them, it's like, well, what happens if I abandon? It's like, do make your own way home. Do not contact the race organizer. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time since I've seen one of them. Yeah, is there, is there a sag wagon? No. Is there a number I should phone? The answer to that is, do you have your own medical insurance? So, but run me through quickly, Badlands, start to finish, how long, how many metres uh, altitude, all off-road as well? Is it a little bit of mixed terrain? I think it's like 85, 90% off-road. And last year's winner, or maybe it was the year before, was Lachlan Morton. And I, I think it was 59 hours he completed in. And I could be wrong, but it's around that 59 hour mark. But the most alarming statistic on that is he only stopped for 19 minutes in that 59 hours. So zero sleep. And everyone's saying to me, like, oh, 59 hours, that's going to be insanely long. And it's like, hold on, forget about Lachlan Morton. Last place took them 280 hours. Whoa. I don't even know how to do the maths on that. What's that, like a week and a half or two weeks? <laughs> I don't have supplies for that. That's absolutely insane. That, I mean, if you, I don't know, on the one hand, that's amazing. Whoever finished in 280 hours, fair play. On the other hand, you kind of think, just give up. That's bonkers. And also, where are you sleeping at time? You're just sleeping night after night in a hedge. Yeah. And where are you sleeping more to the point? Are you going to stop and just bivy down or are you going to do a barrel burn and, and just sleep on your bike and weave into the curb and occasionally get put back on by a passerby? Yeah, I'm hoping the former. Uh, I've brought a bivy and I'm bringing no sleeping bag. So I'm bringing a bivy 
a ground mat cut in half. I've sort of gone on this bus of just cutting things in half. So that's what I've spent my day doing. I got my ground mat, cut it in half, got my toothbrush, cut it in half. And I'm kind of looking at the moment for anything else I can cut in half to save weight. Well, definitely. I think cutting a toothbrush in half is the difference between winning and 280 hours. So (laughs) yeah, well done for that. That reminds me of a complete tangent of a story. But talking of cutting things in half... I once read a little into Vincenzo um, Nibali. Do you say Nibali or Nibali? I'm going to go for Nibali, I'd say actually. Nibali, but it's potato, Nibali. potato. Potato, potato. So Vincenzo Potato, I was reading an interview with him, <laughs> and his dad, to punish him for getting, I think, bad school results, cut his bike in half when he was a teenager. <laughs> oh my God, that's brilliant. <laughs> how brutal is that? Like, how cruel? And then, because dear old Vincenzo obviously atoned for his sins, he welded it back together. Uh, I'm super excited for this week's guest, and I know that you're like a crazy fanboy, and I know you've been storing away a question about Lance Armstrong, so I'm just eager to see if you have the bottle to slip this question about Lance Armstrong into the Sam Bewley chat at some point. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure if I do it, it's going to be brilliantly clunky, and it's going to come at the end. So, I don't know. Keep your ears peeled, listeners. (laughs) Folks, let's welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, Mr. Sam Bewley. Sam Bewley, welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Love doing podcasts, so more than happy to be here. Well, you've absolutely got the... Yeah, exactly. As we we say, speaking over each other, pleasure chatting to a professional. (laughs) You've got an absolutely pro set up there. Sam, you've got the proper cans on, big-ass mic, and this is something that you managed to squeeze in around racing. How do you do that? Well, we started podcasting because we were locked down in 2020, which seemed like a good time to do it. And so we started the social distance podcast and got going with that. And then, yeah, and then racing returned. So I had to find a way to fit it in my schedule, but it's not too difficult. We, we only record every couple of weeks. So uh, it's not like it's a daily thing or anything for us. So easy to do. And it's, it's always fun to do something different as well. Like, you know, it's, it's not rocket science, but still like over, over the last couple of years, just learning a little bit more about podcasting and editing and uploading stuff and just doing bits and pieces. It's nice to have a have something else that I'm interested in outside of bike riding. So if anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, Sam co-hosts with George Bennis and hilarious Dan Jones, who you might remember from Backstage Pass back in the day before all the copyright infringements rolled in from YouTube. <laughs> they host <laughs> the Social Distance Podcast. That's one of my favorite cycling podcasts. But I love on Wikipedia, If uh, don't ask me why, but I typed you into Wikipedia just before the show. And it says, amateur podcast host, professional cyclist. Is that just about to get flipped? You got to submit an edit. Amateur cyclist, professional podcaster. It's not far away. Yeah, some one of our listeners actually updated that when I when I announced that I was ret- retiring from cycling. He sent me a message on uh, one of our social media platforms to say that he'd updated my Wikipedia page to that. So <laughs> I had a look, but yeah, I, I think you're right. What are we? Almost in September now, so only three months away from having to flip it around to. I guess amateur podcast host and amateur cyclist. <laughs> <laughs> and so you've you've had an incredibly long career. So you say you're going to be retiring in a couple of months. And just before we came on air, you said you just got back from a ride because um, you've still got a few races to go this season before the end. Is it a pretty scary thing to be thinking, yeah, you might have to flip it over into being a professional podcaster? What do you do next and how are you kind of feeling about that move? Yeah, it's funny. Like at the moment, I feel I feel really good about it. I've had a... I had a couple of conversations with some friends and, and you know, f- friends who have retired from cycling um, in, the, in the past couple of years. And they made a good point that, like, announcing your retirement and then the reality of actually retiring is quite different. Um, I mean, I've been thinking about it for, for probably a year, uh, whether I'd continue after this year or not. Um, 
And I was always sort of leaning towards the side of not continuing. But then the first couple of months of this year, I was really enjoying racing with the, you know, a bunch of young guys in our team and doing some races that I hadn't done before and uh, like lower level stuff, but really fun trips, like tour of Turkey and uh, going to UAE and doing the kind of, you know, quite romantic cycling program, I suppose. So I was a little bit unsure. Um, but then eventually I made the decision that, you know, I, I wanted to stop. I didn't want to race anymore. I love riding my bike, but I love I love the uh, the recreational side of it more than hitting set and doing repeats on a on a climb. And um, so at the moment, I'm really excited. I feel like I've made 100% the right decision. I feel really good about my decision. I feel really happy with what I've achieved as a professional cyclist over the last, you know, 15 or 20 years. But yeah, it's going to be a change. It's going to be a, a period of adaption for sure. Um, I'd like to stay in the sport, and I think I've got a you know, I might have a couple of opportunities to remain in the sport next year in a different capacity. So excited to sink my teeth into that. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll see We'll see how it goes. I mean, the off-season will be funny. We're, I've always been a big fan of the off-season. We have a good time here in, here in Girona and in, in Andorra with a good group of guys, play a lot of cricket and a lot of um, other little sports and things like that. But there's always a light at the end of the tunnel that you know in three weeks' time or four weeks' time you're going to start training again and you're going to put the bears away. So I have to be careful not to uh, make that like October period carry on for the next... 30 years, I suppose. <laughs> Do you still play that weird wall ball game? Yeah. I was going to bring it up, but I didn't know if I'd have to explain it to you. Yeah, it's, explain it a little bit because I've seen it and I've played it, but it's it's bizarre if anyone doesn't know what's going on with this. Yeah, wall ball, is a, it's a great sport. I'd say, it, you know, it's maybe the greatest sport that's ever been um, <laughs> made. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a pretty simple concept. It's basically just squash with a little rubber ball uh, against a wall and you just hit it with your hand instead of a racket. Um, but Mitch Docker actually introduced us to this, this sport about 10 years ago and it's just got you know bigger and bigger and more and more guys in Girona have got into it so we reserve it only for the off season we don't play it during the season um, you know maybe a little bit too much of injury risk in some in some ways but it's good fun it's like such a social sport you can uh, sport a game or activity <laughs> um, and you can play with two guys you can play with 10 guys and you know we play for a couple of hours in the evening and then have a beer afterwards it's, it's good fun I always wonder with pro racers, do you have a kind of thing written into your contract being like no wall ball? When you're on our books, no skiing. When you're on our books, no mountain biking. Yeah, we, we don't have anything like that in our contracts. I know some teams do, but our team's quite good in, at giving us a few liberties. And um, at the end of the day, they just say, um, you know, you can do it if you want, but obviously, you know, we're adults, so they know we're not going to make bad decisions. And uh, of course, if you get injured out skiing or something, it's a, it's a less less well-received injury than if it was from a training crash or something. But war ball, actually, a couple of our coaches really love war ball because being bike riders, <laughs> you just sit on a bike all day and it's, it's such a healthy sport in a lot of ways, but it's also unhealthy in some ways, like no impacts, you know, not good for bone density. It's not good for other movements. So war ball is actually a really good sport where you get like, you know, you, you get stiff in different parts of your body that we don't usually use. So I think... Um, as long as you don't get injured, it's actually quite a, quite a good thing to do. Yeah, Anthony and I were talking about that, actually, the injury thing. Because, again, so just coming back to what, you know, where you're at in your career looking at retirement, but you've been racing for 13, 14 seasons as a pro and you've been in a couple of big hitter teams in that time as well. What is the most stupid injury someone's come back to the January team camp with or during the year? You know, someone's gone out on the lash and they've bust their leg on someone's stag do or... <laughs> You know, yeah, someone's done done themselves in skiing. What's the most ridiculous thing a teammate's done? Uh, I don't know if I've actually been around anybody that's had any ridiculous injuries. 
of you know, there's, there there has been a couple in the peloton, um, but off the top of my head, I can't. Oh, maybe I had a pretty bad one actually. And end of 2012 at a team camp, I sprained my ankle to the point where it nearly broke, and I was off the bike for like three weeks on crutches, bouncing on a trampoline at a team camp in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably pretty silly. Um, We've been in the swimming pool, so we're all, I was all wet and I just slipped on this trampoline thing and sprained my ankle and had to go home from the training camp early. That's probably the worst one I've had, I suppose. I had a buddy who's a rower and he missed the Olympics after qualifying because he was on a night out celebrating his Olympic qualification. He was chasing a friend, trying to get some of the chips off him. Fell, broke his hand and missed the Olympics. I was like, oh, hard. Oh, yeah. No, it's... it's there's certainly times where you where you think you know you got to rein it in and be a bit more responsible. It's always the case with any professional sport, but there's probably been a couple of situations where you've been like, "Oh, I got away with that." It could have been a lot worse. <laughs> Do you feel like those other ones are those during actual racing as well? So, like a situation in racing where you're like, "Yeah, I should really be, you know, in the back of an ambulance right now." What are those near misses? Um, oh, there you have them almost every single race you do. <laughs> <laughs> There's always, such, always situations that you find yourself in and you're, you're pretty hard on the brakes or having to make an erratic erratic movement to avoid something. And, you know, sometimes you go, oh, I got away with that. If that, if that had been one, one meter to the other side, it could have been pretty catastrophic. But uh, that's all part of racing. And obviously, you know, you have near misses and you have times where you're not so fortunate and you end up in a big pileup with a broken bone. It's all part of it. How does it work now that it's, you know, we're in September and you've announced your retirement already, but you're still going to some races for the rest of the season. Are you kind of mentally checked out? Is it similar to if you have an office job and you're giving your two weeks notice and you're spending the next two weeks basically robbing stationery and trying to smuggle home as many pens and office supplies as you can? Like, what what are you trying to do here? Are you trying to get free chains off the team for the next four weeks? <laughs> yeah, it's, it is. It's a funny one. Like, when I, when I announced that I was re- retiring, I probably did go into like this bit of a period for a couple of weeks where I where I thought I'd retired then by by announcing it. And then I realized pretty quickly, hang on, there's still half a season to go. Um, you know, and this is a team that I've been in for for 10, 10 or 11 years now. It's a team that's been, you know, a big part of my cycling career, a team I've invested a lot into, a team that's invested a lot into me. So you, you, you pretty quickly, I realized, hey, I still owe it to the team. I still owe it to myself to race well all the way to the end of my career. And I mean, it's it's a different motivation, sure. Like maybe you're not doing the same races that you would have been doing if you're still continuing next year or maybe you're doing a little bit less racing. Um, but like I'm going to head up to Belgium in a couple of weeks and do some racing up there. Races that we typically don't do, but, you know, given the situation of chasing points and trying not to be relegated, uh, it's important races for our, for our team this year. And uh, But it's, there's some cool, cool, exciting things about going up there. Like I've Obviously, it's been a large part of my career in Belgium. We stay at a place called the Leppelbeer just out of Ghent. Uh, we've stayed there for, you know, for as long as I've been in this team and have a really cool relationship with the owners there. And so I'm actually quite excited to go back there for one last hurrah and, um, you know, have the, it's quite a homely feeling there. So lots of things to look forward to actually for my last few races. And obviously, we're going to be chasing results as well with Dylan Gronerweg and those guys. So, you know, I owe it to them and myself to perform there and train hard and and give the team the best shot at uh not being relegated next year <laughs> so there's there's no little part of you uh that's going to end up back in our race calendars on websites next year because you're racing on bounds because you're back in the gravel like everyone else that seems to say yeah i'm retiring oh no i'm not because you've got a background in mountain biking as well right so you'd be perfectly suited to getting some knobbly tires and going out and hacking it for 200 miles no there's zero chance zero <laughs> chance i'll um 
if, if I, <laughs> there's not even a, not even a little window of opportunity there. Once I once I stop uh, racing at the end of the season, I'm done with being a professional athlete. Um, and I mean, I, I do ride the gravel. I, I think gravel is great fun. But I, and I and I will ride it next year. I've actually just ordered a new gravel bike from Giant, so that's my little retirement gift to myself. And I'll uh, ride recreationally with the boys and get out with the, get out with the lads and do some gravel rides and get out and do some road rides as well. But if I pin a number on in, a, in, a, in anything, it'll be uh, I don't know, maybe a running race or a, you know I'll do some some gravel events close to close to home, but just for fun and stop at all the food stops and eat a plate of paella and couple of wines and things like that so you just said it there right you get you bought a bike from giant now you're almost on the cusp of being able to say what no professional is allowed to say when they're under contract what is honestly the worst bike that you've ever been handed or worst piece of equipment in your career and you've had to race on it um oh well i get in trouble if i say this or not i don't know I guess we'll find out. Yeah, we'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> Potentially depends what you say. <laughs> yeah, is there something? Is there something absolutely libelous coming? I, I think like I've I've been lucky in my career that I've always been involved with teams that had good bike sponsors. So obviously, I went, when I was on Trek Livestrong, and then I went to Radio Shack for a couple of years. We were riding Tricks, which are great bikes. Uh, then we had a big long relationship with Scott uh, in Green Edge, which you know those bikes are amazing as well. Now we're riding Giants, which is. Uh, for me, up there with one of the best bikes I've ridden. Uh, you know, super light, super fast, uh, really comfortable. Um, so I've been pretty lucky, but yeah, my, I think I'd have to say that the Bianchi, the Bianchi's last year were probably the, the least favorite of my bikes I've ridden. Interesting. <laughs> I, I had a piece of uh, equipment I rode for Aqua Blue, and we had helmets made by Salev. And we actually had a full on rider protest where we were like, these helmets are not fit for a purpose. If you crashed, they like flew off and went across the road. <laughs> like they were not fitted at all. That was like probably the worst piece of equipment I've had. Yeah, we, we actually, when, when we first started with Scott at the start of Greenwich in 2012, they were just kind of developing the like equipment. You know, like they had good bikes already, but they had started to make helmets and stuff. And that, those, that first run of helmets was pretty sketchy as well. They, they didn't fit so well, but thankfully they got the they got it all sorted pretty quickly and you know that they was a great sponsor and uh giant the same everything about giants good the wheels are amazing the bikes are amazing uh we're actually really i think we're really lucky to have this partnership with giant now and hopefully for the guys that are still racing for the team next year though the partnership will continue long into the future for them yeah i've got a lot of love for the uh like giant kind of resurrecting the kdex brand so kdex being like didn't they used to stick kdex on the top tubes of um Giants like early carbon fiber lugged bikes, and that was kind of like yeah. it was a giant Kdex as a bike, and then it's come back as a as a wheel brand, and they've got yeah they've got some really good gear. Do you have to kind of save up your stuff now because before if you bust your pair of Kdex wheels, you just got another one. Mm. Whereas now you're like, okay, this is going to have to last me, <laughs> or, or I'm going to be paying out two thousand euros for another set in the event of yeah smashing into a pothole and ruining the rim. Like you kind of like Anthony said, you sort of raiding the service course bit by bit, taking crucial things so that you don't have to be buying them in the future. It's not a bad idea actually. Instead of instead of stealing stationery, maybe I should just slowly start trying to build a group set or something. <laughs> Get a couple of chains, a few derailers. It's like that Johnny Cash song where he starts smuggling out yeah. from the warehouse bit by bit. You could build yourself a full bike like one chain link at a time here. Yeah. Oh my frame's broken. Get another frame. Start <laughs> yeah. stockpiling. <laughs> You probably have better luck than a lot of the bike shops or bike consumers out there actually trying to get your hands on a chain. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy at the moment. Not even for our team. It's it's pretty hard to get hold of some stuff. I think 
hopefully that uh, that solves itself pretty quickly. I was going to say to you, is there a highlight? It's hard to you know condense a fourteen year career where you know you've defended yellow jerseys, pink jerseys, won a couple of Olympic medals. You know, being one of the best endurance riders on the track of the last generation. Is it hard to decipher that down and pick a highlight from all that, or is there moments that stand out for you? Oh, there's, there are a few moments that stand out. I think from a personal point of view, the winning the bronze medal in Beijing at, in the 2008 Olympics, that was pretty big because at, up until that point, we hadn't even won a medal at the World Champs in the team pursuit. We were fourth the, that year in the Worlds, and then we managed to get it together, and that was kind of the start of, like, I guess I look at that as a bit of a trailblazing moment for New Zealand track cycling. It was the first Olympic medal that the team pursuit team had won, and from that point on, the, the program really grew and grew into one of the powerhouses of world track cycling. So that, that was a big moment. I was 20, 20 years old. My parents were there. My grandparents were there. My brother was there. Um, yeah, and it was, it was in some ways an unexpected medal or at least a, a medal that was not guaranteed or not a certainty. Uh, so that was a big moment. And then on the road, I've had a couple of really cool moments. 2016 was a cool year in general. When I was part of the Giro and the Vuelta where we finished on the podium at both those races with Esteban. And then the 2018 Giro was a huge highlight for me in some in a funny way, because we led the race for 14 days with Simon. We won five stages, but then it all went to, to shit with two days to go. And, you know, we ended up with, Simon ended up like finishing nowhere in the, in the overall standings. And, but it was just a big moment in, in the team where, you know, we started to believe we could, you know, we'd had the success of 2016. And then this was another, another bike ride in the team that showed that, you know, winning a grand tour was just around the corner from for the organization. And, um, what Simon was doing that that year and leading the race for so long, he created a real opportunity for myself and my teammates to to expose ourselves and our talents as well. And that gave us the, you know, we had a platform there to show the, the world that we were good bike riders as well. And that kind of changed the course of, you know, the, the next few years for quite a few of us in terms of, um, you know, where we stood in the peloton and, you know, what we were worth, I suppose, in some ways and, and what races we deserved to be at. And the uh, the track thing's an interesting one as as a kind of a way in, I guess, to the road because you end up, you know, being a really good time trialist and you know that that shining, as you say, going through with Orica and having people that could kind of give you that exposure at the top of the team and give the rest of the guys that exposure. I just noticed, like looking back at your kind of uh, your your team rosters, you you work with Axel Merckx at the uh, Livestrong kind of program, the feeder program. And that, of course, is Eddie, is his dad. And Eddie was a massive proponent of track cycling, you know, honed his craft on the track and did a lot of that. What's that kind of crossover like to you? Do you sort of feel that that is what gives, A, gives you that raw time trialist power? And B, you know, is, is there something special in a track rider going to road that a road rider on their own kind of lacks? Uh, I think it's just, it's a whole different set of skills that you learn from a young age when you're riding track. Like I would, I would encourage any young up-and-coming cyclists to race a track, even if it was just like carnival racing and things like that. But you just develop such a good skill set, bike handling skills in the bunch races. Uh, and you also develop a good race craft, like learning how to, okay, how do I win a points race? When do I make moves? When do I do these sorts of things? Um, it's great for from a technical side of things or physical side of things. It's good for for pedaling, really good for your pedaling technique. And, and then I guess if you're doing team pursuits or individual pursuits, there's no line on the track. You know, it's like, if you've got a big engine, you go fast, you know? Okay, now, now nowadays, it's you've also got to be super, super aero and spend 10 grand on a skin suit and do all these other bits and pieces. But when I was doing it, it was basically like it just showed that the guy 
you know, had power and had the ability to go hard and go fast for a, for a period of time. And um, so it was a good, it was, again, it was about exposure, I suppose. Like I got into Trek Livestrong with where Axel was basically through what I'd done on the track the year before in Beijing. And, you know, you see it now with so many bike riders coming across from the track and being so successful on the road because it's just a, it's just a, um, it's evidence to show that this guy's got the ability, he's got the engine, and then you can just hone it in once you get on the road and start developing. You know, you've got to, you've got to develop in different ways. Like you come off the track and, you know, it's 85 kilos and I had to get down to below 80 kilos to be anywhere near doing a good job in a grand tour. So you learn other things when you come out of the track, but ultimately you come off the track with a really good foundation and, and bones to be a good road rider. I chatted with Matt Heyman and on the track thing it was really interesting because he was talking about that iconic moment where he's going into the velodrome and if you remember Heyman's win it was him and Boone and came into the velodrome together first Boone and saying to him you know come on Matt let's get working and we'll stay away from the Bosenhagen Stanard group that's coming up from behind and he's like no no not today Tom I'm not working so he sits on him the guys come up from behind and then he starts that sprint but he said as the sprint was starting, he was like a massive, what was, I can't even remember, he's like 200 to 1 rank outsider for the win. But he said as the sprint started, he'd ridden so many track races that he just knew the importance of keeping the rider on his hip. And so he started the sprint with like Boone and on his hip and he was sort of nudging him up the track and he's like, at the end of Roubaix, for him to come around me, he has to go up fighting gravity. He's going the long way around, he's going uphill. And I was like, you just can't teach that. Like a DS can't tell someone this in their radio going into the velodrome. These need to be lived experiences from him, you know, going to the line in scratch races, points races as a kid. And this is just like muscle memory. Mm. And like on the track, there's only one way you can come. You can only come around the guy on one side. You can't, you know, you can't go on the inside. You have to go around him. So you don't have to worry about which way is, which side is the guy going to come around me or like looking both ways or looking the wrong way. You know he can only come around to the right. He's got to go uphill to come around you. And a group of four riders as well, you know they're all going to try to come. So what happened to Boonen is he got he just basically got blocked in because then Stannard and Bosenhagen got next to him and he couldn't get out. Um, so, yeah, well, that was a smart sprint like for him to – on the on the road if he had opened his sprint up at that point, which was probably still like 250 metres to go, it was on the back straight or well, it might, might have been yeah, 250 yeah. metres to go, That's he's going to get passed by Boonen on the road. But on the track, it's it's you open the sprint up early. It's not easy to come around when you've got to go uphill. If and they'll go first, lead it out. That's it. And he's not slow either, Heyman. Let's give him some credit as well. He's pretty bloody quick. <laughs> he's actually won a few kicks before. Speaking of that, that kind of scenario and that coming around um, in a track race, did you see uh, the Matt Walls crash, the um, British rider at the Commonwealth Games? What did you kind of so? So, if anyone hasn't seen it, it's uh, in the scratch race. Um, and Walls comes up and he's basically, he basically crashes and ends up going over the hoardings and into the crowd. Oh, and luckily, wild to see that. Yeah. No one had any lasting injuries, uh, not least the riders involved. One, one chap went to hospital but as a spectator, but, you know, it's you know, kind of okay. But obviously led to a lot of chat about track safety. Do you watch that and think, yeah, that could be avoided and what measures should be taken to avoid that? Or is that just a kind of inevitability? Well, like... Nine times out of ten, when you crash on a track, it's actually it's it's never that bad because there's a the fall's not so big because the banking's just next to you, and you again you pretty much only you can only really fall one way you can only sort of go up the track and then slide down it. Um, but yeah, they were so high up on the track, so wide on the track that there wasn't a lot of space. Like 
so he went over the fence, obviously. And I, I guess when I watched it, I was like, oh, what's going to come now? Is it going to be this whole protest or spiel or, you know, cry out for like we need to put up netting or fences or <laughs> like, you know, like all of a sudden you're like looking at like watching a football game in Colombia or something when you've got the crowd caged in. I was like, oh, I hope that doesn't happen, you know. In the end, maybe it would have helped, maybe would have stopped them from going over the barriers. But I mean, I wouldn't say it's like uncommon. It has happened a few times. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember, but like 15 years ago, probably, what well, Spanish Madison rider went over the over the barriers against six and died. So, like, yeah, but but it's still pretty pretty irregular thing to happen. And I mean, it, that's the coolest thing about track cycling is that you're like you you're there, you're right next to the racing, and you see it all. And it's like a such an exhilarating sport to watch because of that. So, yeah, I mean, could it be avoided? Well, the crash probably couldn't be avoided. That's just what happens when you've got. 15 riders trying to go wide on a, on a banking sprint for a result. But yeah, what, what would have stopped them from going to the crowd? I guess a net or something, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, there's certainly been a lot of calls. Yeah. Like, like netting, uh, some, you know, kind of perspex screens or something. But as you say, it's, it's track racing. It's not ice hockey. But yeah. I sort of wonder, given, you know, people always talk about, I don't know, going up a really steep climb because you're going so slowly and you've got a tunnel of fans. This is on the road, obviously. And you can you can hear people. You know, you often get a, right, a racer saying you can smell the alcohol in people's breath, yeah. You know, and the flares are going off in your in your face and everything. It's a very visceral experience. The track is noisy, but like, how much of that can you really hear? Because you could be, you know, in a situation where you're going past someone in the crowd and you're probably like a matter of feet away from them. and They're screaming. Can you kind of hear that when you're going, you know, fifty kilometers an hour and you're in the zone? And more to the point, can you like can you actually hear coaching? Does coaching work on the track in the middle of a race, or is it just you know, is it just someone trying to you know feel like they're doing something, but ultimately you know you can't, you, it's all shut out. Yeah, you, you can hear like the you can hear the noise, but you, you you couldn't pick out a word that somebody would say to you, especially in a team pursuit when you you're just like tunnel vision focused on what you're doing. But there's absolutely no doubt that you can feel the atmosphere. You know, you can feel the atmosphere, and it and it's like, especially if you're racing at home or something, it's like. Well, like uh, racing in some places, like uh, the Carly World Cup in Colombia, that was unbelievable. It was like uh, you, you just can hear the no- like the noise, and all it is is noise. You can't hear what anybody's saying, but you you can hear that. You can feel the atmosphere. You can hear them banging on the fence. Like it is an it is a really cool atmosphere. Um, and then yeah, like <clears throat> yeah, you can't hear a coach in a team pursuit in a big event. No way. So like I remember <laughs> before the London Olympics because we were we were kind of a bit of a old school team where we used to always like the way we ran our schedule was our coach would just yell out the lap time. And that was how we knew what schedule we were riding. And for the London Olympics, we actually, uh, the three weeks, the three week build up before we went there, we, we started to switch to just using an iPad with just a number on it. Cause we just, we knew we weren't going to be able to hear, hear the coaches yelling at a time or they walked, sometimes they walk the line. So they'll stand on the pursuit line and they'll stand, you know, in front of it or behind it, depending on your, whether you're up or down on your schedule or up or down on the team you're racing. So, yeah, we had to employ those techniques for London because we knew that that crowd was going to be so loud, especially if we were lining up against the Brits. So, yeah, but I, I think, you, yeah, the atmosphere, it's like being at a football game. Like They can't hear the, what the crowd's saying, but you can feel it for sure. Built around one of the finest carbon frames in the world, the Ultimate is the definition of a world-class race bike, racking up win after win at the highest levels since its launch in 2004. 
With the 2023 Ultimate, Canyon have engineered the perfect balance in a road race bike without compromises. It's more capable than ever of attacking the high mountains, going full gas on the flat or sprinting for the win. It features full cable integration, wider tyre clearance than ever before and more pedal power by reinforcing the frame in key areas for increased stiffness and stability. And the weight has been kept to a minimum with big frame aerodynamic improvements from Canyon's partnership with aero experts Swiss side, saving 10 watts, 45 kilometers an hour over the previous model. It's faster than ever before. The new Canyon Ultimate is available now at canyon.com. That's canyon.com. So I'm sticking on the, the track cycling team. I didn't know we were going full tracky on this one. But did you watch uh, Dan Bingham breaking the world error records? Because I think for me, that definitely underscores exactly what you were talking about, that the track used to be get on and the guy with the biggest engine wins. You know, no disrespect to Dan Bingham, but I think most reasonable cycling fans, pundits or riders will say, you know, Dan Bingham isn't a Victor Carpenarts. He's not a you know, Philippe Ogana, he doesn't have that engine, that that record was largely driven by a moderate engine in comparison to those guys and a lot of technology and aerodynamic work. Yeah, it's 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 funny with the R record that because they obviously, you know, the records that used to stand were done in Superman position and things like that. And they decided, oh, we're going to nullify those records because they're all done in these positions that are illegal now. So our record's back up for grabs, um, but it's still just an arms race. Track cycling, it is an arms race. And, I mean, it's getting that way in time trialing on the road as well. Um, but like you say with Dan, like he's obviously a, a bloody good bike rider. But at the end of the day, he just puts so much into the one percenters and the positions and the wheels and the skin suits and all that stuff, which makes such a difference. So we're kind of heading back. Even though the position is a, is a legal position and what everybody can use, it's still a record that's going to be dictated by technology for sure. I mean, if you get a combination of the two, if you once once you get Filippo Gunner on there with all that technology and his engine and his power, we're going to be back at the uh, record that it was with Boardman in the Superman position. So, I think once he's done it, I th- it was a good idea from Dan to get him before he did because once he does it, it might not be <laughs> might not be touchable. Yeah, that's another tactic of the hour record, isn't it? Is scheduling, <laughs> making sure you get in there before someone else does. But I just I think it's it's uh, ironic, isn't it? It's quite funny that they call it casually referred to as like the Merck's hour. And you just look at the bike that Eddie rode um, in Mexico City, and it's you know a one-inch diameter steel frame made by Ernesto Colnago yeah. <laughs> in his shed. And you think, like, you know, from our British perspective, when we go um, to the hour record in 2015, I want to say, or 2016, he had a pair of 3D printed handlebars in titanium that allegedly cost like upwards of fifty thousand pounds to make. And technically should have been available for people to buy within the year for it to be UCI compliant. But I don't, th- I don't see anyone in the Surrey Hills riding around with a £50,000 set of <laughs> 3D printed handlebars. So it kind of does make a, make a mockery of it. But do you think we should go back to just having like one standardized bike and it is just engine, 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 and that's it? Skin suit, bike, everyone wears the same CT helmet, almost like Kirin. And then you'd have an hour record that is just about the human. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's still pretty cool. Like, I guess it's just the evolution of the sport. Like, you've got to have some some boundaries. But, um, yeah, it is, it is an arms race, which means that, it's, you know, the pool of bike riders that are going to go for the hour record is going to be sm- much smaller. Uh, but I think it would be like that anyway. If it would just went back to the person, it would still be like, it's only going to be the same guys going for the hour record. 
maybe where the impact is the greatest is if you go to like a 10 miler in the UK somewhere and you're 17 years old or you're 16 years old and you know you're your, your your dad's working two jobs just to put bread on the table, but you're racing against some guy whose old man's a, a banker in London and he's making two million pounds a year, and you, he's turned up on the with the fifty thousand pound set of handlebars, and you're just trying to ride a bike for fun. Like, of course, then 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 the opportunity is not the same. But um, I think the evolution of sports is important. I think it's wow, it, it, it is, and so, to to a, to a, to a degree at least. I mean, it just makes things faster, makes things more exciting. Uh, but yeah, they, they should at least at least the position rules us in some way good that we're not going to end up with these guys out there on these bizarre bizarre positions. But yeah, the arc is an interesting one. I used to enjoy having sort of uh, moral superiority over my triathlon friends, where I'd be like, at least cycling is cool. Like triathlon, <laughs> you know, they've got these weird fenders, no sleeves on the skin suits. It's just it's it's a weird look. And then specialized go and bring out this helmet that's like parts snood parts, and I'm like. We have lost all of our sartorial credibility now. It's just, it's gone. But that arms race you're talking about on the track, that's happening in TTs now as well. Like I look at Remco who just decimates the field in the TT in the Vuelta. And I'm just wondering like how many hours is someone like that putting in the wind tunnel? Like obviously Remco has a phenomenal engine, specializer, geeking out on the tech, but there's so much wind tunnel time gone into that as well, surely. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like it is the same in our team. Like uh our top time trial riders spend, you know, like they do two or three sessions in the wind tunnel each year or, um, and then they've got the good skin suits from Vortec and all those sorts of things. But it, all that stuff is expensive, um, you know, and, and World Tour cycling teams, they all have a big enough budget to be able to provide that service to, to guys. But like a team like ours, for example, might not have the budget to provide that service to any more guys outside of like the five or six best time trial riders in our team. Whereas like Ineos or Jumbo or something, they can do it for everybody because their budget's twice the size of ours. Um, and then you get a situation where you, you might have a team time trial somewhere. And, you know, we're going to have three guys in that team that have Vortex skin suits and five guys that have, you know, the normal skin suits. But Jumbo might have all eight of those guys in those good skin suits and all on the good wheels and all on the good bikes and all been in the wind tunnel. And, and that's where you're going to like see some discrepancies, I think, in performances. But... There's there's plenty of other things that you can do. I think the like that, that stuff's okay. It's all part of it. That's all development. Everybody wants the best and the fastest stuff. And if it's out there and you can afford it, then great, go for it. But there's other things you can do to to change. You know, there's probably no no need for a, a guy in an individual time trial or a, or a team time trial to have, uh, or team time trial is different, but an individual time trial have 15 bikes on the roof of the car and have the car right <laughs> up, your, up your ass. Like that's clearly just you know he's not he's not changing his bike 15 times. That's clearly there for a performance gain. So those sorts of things you could probably police a little bit better. Do you mean from the point of view of because if you've got a car with 15 bikes on the roof and you're going just about behind the rider, you're creating a bit of a kind of vortex pushing them forward? Is that yeah, what you you're mean by pushed, <laughs> You're getting pushed, basically. Yeah. yeah. I think it's starting to... The trend seems to be reversing a little bit. Is it? I know we talked a few months ago and it was like, it was full on, everyone was doing it then, but I'm not sure if they've started to police it, but I'm noticing it less anyway. Maybe the TV cameras are just picking it up less. Yeah, or maybe people are starting to go, oh, everyone's onto it now. Like, is it worth the criticisms? Is it worth three dudes on a Tuesday afternoon sitting on a podcast talking about it? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Wednesday. It's, a Wednesday. it's Wednesday, actually, isn't it? Jeez. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't really, yeah, I haven't noticed it neither. I, I haven't noticed it as much as I was at the start of this year. It seemed to be pretty, pretty regular occurrence early on in the year, but um, yeah, less so now. 
How much of a kind of like part to play in your racing did, or well, does, because you're obviously still racing, do the vehicles kind of have beyond just them, you know, capturing what's going on if it's a moto and stuff? Because I remember talking to Chris Boardman once and he was explaining that a moto would be really useful, partly for the reasons that we've just been discussing. If you're out front, you're getting effectively slightly streamed by the moto either behind you or in front with the big you know bloke stood up on the on the saddle filming you with a massive camera as was back in his day you know in the 90s but also when you're descending uh you could see a brake light ahead so you would know where the apex you know what a good point for a two-wheeled vehicle to brake would be i was wondering like are there other elements with that kind of entourage of vehicles that are actually quite useful to riders yeah, the, the motorbikes are a huge um, influence on on cycling at the moment. It's been a quite a big topic amongst bike riders over the last couple of years, and 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 then like it's a massive benefit if you're the person who's benefiting, but it's a massive inconvenience if you're the one who's on the other on the receiving end of it. Like you can have you can have days where you're like in the peloton at a race, and and somebody's pulling on the front, and you're like sitting halfway back in the bunch, and you're going, "How is somebody riding on the front? I can barely hold the wheel in front of me now, and I'm in the peloton." <laughs> But they're just sitting on the motorbikes. And also more breakaways are winning these days because of the motorbikes. Uh, breakaways are harder to catch because they've got this entourage of motorbikes in front of them uh, and getting a bit of a draft. So it's, you know, even now, like in some races, when you're if you're controlling the breakaway for that day, you actually need to be mindful about the fact that you're also, you've got to contend with the motorbikes at a certain point when you really start the big chase. Um, and yeah, I mean, descending is, descending's good because, you can descend so much faster when you have a motorbike in front of you. Uh, like every every single pro bike rider uses the motorbikes to to get a guide on what's coming up and how fast you can go. Um, and in some ways, that creates like even though you're going faster, it creates a little bit of a safety net because you've effectively got somebody doing the recon for you, just you know, 200 meters in front of you. Um, but yeah, the, the motorbikes do have a big influence on bike racing, and there's probably ways to manage that better as well. And I think. You know, most race organisers or commissaires at the race, they make an effort to um, to get the motorbikes out of the way if they're if they're effectively motivating the breakaway or whatever. But hasn't it always been the case, Sam? Like that, like we've had motorbikes in races for you know as long as I've been watching cycling. Why is it more of a topic of conversation now? More TV coverage? Yeah, I think more motorbikes as well now. Um, you know, obviously with the it's a bit of a catch twenty two because. You know, the peloton over the last couple of years has also been pretty loud about rider safety. You know, we need to have up the safety protocols. So that actually means that you bring more motorbikes in because you have more marshals that they can stop and um, note, point out and notify road furniture or dangerous areas or whatever. But then those motorbikes have got to get back past the peloton again. So then that's an unsafe time that, that they're getting past, but then they're creating safety when they're in front. But yeah, more TV coverage, more photographers, um, all these sorts of things. So I think there's there's more vehicles on the road, more motorbikes on the road than there used to be. Police, you know, you know, in this world of a world that's going, I guess, in some ways, nuts about health and safety. There's probably like a re- a bigger requirement on bike races to have more police officers or more, yeah, more marshals and all those sorts of things. So I think that's probably the the crux of it. Is there's just more motorbikes out there. But yeah, and they're, and they're necessary. They are necessary. It's obviously necessary to have TV coverage. It's obviously necessary to have photos. It's obviously necessary to have police and marshals. Uh, it's just got a, it's a bit of a balancing act trying to find out how to do that and do it without it influencing the result of a race. Is there a sneaking suspicion 
but maybe they kind of let it slide in in view of breakaways because let's face it a breakaway is exciting if it sticks we all kind of want that to happen i mean you probably don't <laughs> from a mm. you, you know team doesn't but the armchair spectator is just like willing some underdog to somehow stay clear do you think they kind of let it happen yeah, I don't know. They maybe do if it's a Frenchie in Tour de France up the road by himself, or um, <laughs> but like the it's a, it's a funny situation because we all complain about it, but at the same time we all use them. <laughs> so like, if I'm right in the front and there's a motorbike in front of me, of course I'm going to try and get as close as I can to it. Why wouldn't I? You know, when I'm in the breakaway and there's a motorbike, of course I try to get as close as I can to it because it's an advantage. But then at the same time, if I'm on the receiving end of it, I'm in the bunch hanging, struggling to hang on. And I'm like, oh, get the motorbikes out of the way. Or <laughs> I've got a teammate up the road and they're on the, get the motorbikes out of the way. But it's one of those things that like we all, we all use them to our, to our advantage when we're in that position to do so. I mean, I guess if everybody was like, oh, let's not use them, then I might solve it. But that's not, never going to happen. It needs to be policed and say like, hey, you've got, to, you've got to be 100 meters in front of the bunch or whatever. It's one of those areas that we're, we are seeing change. The sport is constantly evolving. It's never static. So we need to figure out how to respond to this. And another area that springs to mind at the moment is sort of the, the two-tier nutrition we're seeing in the peloton, where some teams kind of forward and are distributing ketones to riders, where other teams are, you know, totally banning them or they're just, you know, saying, well, if riders want to take them, you can fund them yourselves. Is there much chat in the bunch about that? No, I, I haven't heard much about ketones for, for a while now. I, I, I assume that people are still using them. Um, we've never used them in our team. I've never used them. But that's, yeah, like it's an, that's a, another thing where it's like it's a piece of nutrition that's just really expensive to use. So like a lot of teams aren't going to be able to afford to, you know, supply a year worth of that nutrition. But there, there is, I think the, the nutrition is probably the one thing that's changed the most in the last like three or four years in cycling where people have got realized, actually, this is a hell of an important area. And if you get this wrong, you can, you can suffer. And if you get it right, you can, you, can, you can benefit from it. So, you know, all teams now will have nutritionists or mo- multiple nutritionists, you know, protocols around nutrition, how many carbohydrates per hour to have, all this stuff that I never even knew about. Like when I was, when I was first professional, you know, just drunk when I was thirsty and ate when I was hungry. But now it's like you're like trying to hit certain targets and drink X amount of carbs, eat X amount of carbs every hour. And you you see the that's one of the reasons why people are, I think, going so fast up the last climbs of, of a Grand Tour stage. You know, one of it's, yeah, lighter bikes and all the faster bikes and things like that. But also people are getting to the, the last climb so much more fueled and so much more topped up than they used to be. So you really do think it works? I mean, for you as a rider, did it change how you, you know, noticeably did it change how you performed when you had... Uh, a nutritionist or a DS coming along and saying, "Right, Sam, here's you know here's your fueling strategy. This is what you're going to be eating every 20 minutes or drinking every 20 minutes." Because I imagine that maybe if you kind of started racing on guts to begin with, that could be a bit of a distraction. Oh, it makes a big difference. There's there's just there's no no doubt about it. Um, like when we started working on it really hard a few years ago, I was blown away by how little or how much I needed to eat and how underfueled I was. Even though I, n- I never really felt like I was underfueled because I wasn't hunger flattened or anything like that. But I was still like, I'm getting tired a bit earlier than I should be. Uh, now I can't go as hard at the end of a race as I can early on in the race. And of course, that's natural. But I was blown away by how much like our nutrition would say to me after a hard stage of a, of a Giro stage, for example, okay, you need to eat this much rice and pasta tonight. I'm like, what? I don't even know if that's possible. You know? Um, and that was always based on how much we ate in the race. Like, okay, you didn't eat enough in the race, so you got to eat really get it in tonight or whatever. So 
yeah, it, it makes a huge difference. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And what in terms of equipment do you think has, has made a huge difference in the 14 years you've been racing? Um, yeah, lots of things. Wheels are better, wheels are faster, tires are better, tires are faster. You know, obviously we're making the switch now over to, you know, a few years ago across to disc brakes. Massive resistance from the Peloton again. We hate change. We're yeah. full of traditionalists. Um, but incredible improvement. Like, I don't know what we were thinking, why we weren't on them, on them earlier. You know, okay, people complain that they rub a little bit every now and again, but man, they're braking so much better. The braking's consistent. Uh, you can descend so much quicker because you know what you're going to get every time you touch the brakes, especially if it's wet. You know, there's so many improvements. We change gears and chain rings and tire pressures every day, you know. You know, back in the day, I was like, I don't know, I just put eight bar on my tires and just whatever chain ring, 53 chain ring, I suppose. Now we're using <laughs> 53s and some days we're using 56s and, you know, some days we're using seven bar on a tire, some days we're using five and a half, like just all these little changes like where people have started to put studies and research into how fast a tire is on a certain road surface or on a certain conditions and, you know, okay, the stage is going to be this, this and this and, the you know, teams are using ValueViewer now and looking at the courses and you Google Street View and, okay, in the last 2K, there's this amount of corners and then it's slightly downhill and it's going to be a tailwind at 17K an hour. Okay, I need a big chain ring for the sprint today. All these different sorts of things. So there's been so many like little changes that have all come along in the last five or six years that are making cycling um, faster, I'd say. I think the next evolution is getting really interesting. It's something I've been playing around with a lot, like aura rings, continuous glucose monitors, and I'm using Super Sapiens at the moment and looking at that continuous glucose score. And I haven't really figured out, as I think a lot of people that are using these wearables, it's generating just so much data, like your aura rings thrown at you, heart rate variability, readiness scores. But it's the next iteration of that. It's the application of how all this data informs and changes our training and our racing strategy, which I think is going to be super interesting. I can almost see a like full money ball scenario where a DS is in a car and is able to monitor glucose levels. Buley needs to eat now on the radio. Buell's your blood sugar level is dropping too much. It's the mind boggles. It could go into this weird matrix type place, although the Peloton will surely resist it every step of the way. Yeah. I mean, and like, I don't know, like some of that stuff, is it, is it all a fad? Is it, a, you know, does it actually do anything? Like that's, I don't know the answer. I'm just, you know, hypothesizing and like, but everybody is, because we're in this world now where like it's become such a magnifying glass on the improvements that can be made by the one percenters for lack of a better term. And so like if, if there's an aura ring out there and somebody, you watch a TV ad and someone says it's going to help you sleep and or show give you evidence and, you know, to change your sleeping patterns and all that stuff. And everybody's going to try it. I mean, I haven't tried it because I'm retiring. But, um, <laughs> like, you know, those things, everyone's going to look for an advantage in those ways. So it's probably pretty endless, like, where we can end up. You look at even, like, Formula One and things like that and how they how that's a sport that, like, it blows my mind how that sport can continue to progress and develop and innovate. But they do every year. Uh, so... I mean, a bike's a simple machine. It's a set of handlebars and a couple of wheels, but I'm sure we haven't seen the end of it. But the problem with it is nearly, and I look at amateur riders, and it, this stuff works for the one percenters. It works for you guys who are breathing that rarefied air at the very top of our sport who are pseudo-human. But like a company sent me out ketones to use, and people are asking me, well, how did the ketones affect you? And I was like, you know, when you're eating 
Chinese takeaway three nights a week, it's difficult to really yeah. tell how the ketones are working. And this is the reality for most, you know, club cyclists or amateur cyclists. Your life isn't perfectly controlled as if you're a world tour rider. So looking at heart rate variability, if you've been drinking, you know, half a bottle of wine in the evening before bed, there's limited benefit to looking at this data. Yeah, exactly. And like you could put a an amateur cyclist on the world's lightest, fastest bike and put a professional cyclist on the world's slowest, heaviest bike and I can tell you who's going to win. Um, you know, there's, so there's, there's still plenty of other things that you've got to do before you start worrying about all that stuff, like plenty of foundations you've got to put down. But, but yeah, like you say, it's just, yeah, I'd, I'd, I, I, would, I wouldn't like to have a, I don't know if teams do it, I wonder, but like if I had an aura ring, for example, and that, that data was uploaded into um, my training peaks every morning, and they could see my heart rate variability and my sleep quality and all that stuff. I wouldn't like, I don't mind my coaches looking at what training I'm doing and giving me a kick up the ass if I haven't done enough or telling me to slow down if I'm doing too much. But if someone starts, my coach starts calling me and go, Did you drink last night, Sam? Like, back on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I need, a, I need some privacy as well. Do you feel that you mentioned Formula One then? Because Formula One, they're always, season after season, they're trying to kind of basically instill parity, take out the disparity between teams with budget versus teams without. And they're trying to kind of make the cars both things that can be innovative, but also things that everyone is limited by the same factors. So you don't just get a team with a massive budget and there's Mercedes and they're just blowing everyone out of the water and it's almost not about the driver so much because there is that point where it's like, you've got a fast, reliable car, you're going to win a lot of races. Do you feel there's a similar thing beginning in cycling? So, for example, when you see uh, Ineos rocking up and they've all, Dave's gone and bought them all some lightweights for that. And they, even though they're sponsored by Shimano, they've all got lightweight wheels for some mountain stages. Are you guys just like, you lot of dicks? How are we supposed to compete with this? This is just not fair. Is there that feeling that budgets win races, especially where equipment's concerned? Yeah, for sure. Um, not just with equipment, but also like teams with big, bigger budgets can buy better riders as well. You know, like some teams yeah. might not have the money to pay. You know, they might have one rider that earns one and a half million euros a year, but they, they can't afford to have two of them. And then you get some teams that can afford to have five of them or six of them. Um, so that that's an, another thing. But like at, at the same time, it's how do we solve that? Okay. You know, there's no, there's no, oh, you can put a limit on budgets, I suppose, but at the, you've still got to put the limit high at a point that most teams won't get to it anyway, because you can't go, okay, most teams are on, have a budget of 15 million euros, we're going to make the budget 17 million euros. And then the team that's making has a budget of 50 million euros goes, well, now you've just cut up, cut the knees away from us. So like it's, it's probably still going to be a budget that falls somewhere in the middle that most teams aren't going to reach anyway. Um, but then, you know, like there's so many other things that you, we could go so deep into this and, you know, TV rights. Okay, let's get some TV rights and split the split the TV rights um, income with some teams. You know, and bolster everybody's budgets a little bit. Bring that, bring them that budget limit of okay, thirty million euros. And the teams that are making have a budget of fifteen million euros can actually get up to twenty million euros now. Or you know, all there's all these different ways that you can bring it in because, you know, some teams it's just a reality that you can't. It's hard enough in this sport to find sponsors sometimes, let alone to try to convince a sponsor that hey, we. We need twice the amount of money we have currently. So there's absolutely no doubt that budgets does affect success. It's not that the teams, you know, like, okay, yeah, you can also have better staff members or like, you know, high, high, more highly qualified people or whatever. But at the end of the day, the teams that have the budget can employ all these staff members to focus on 
innovation to focus on wind tunnel stuff to focus on nutrition and all that stuff where most teams they can go oh we need to find a coach who can kind of cross over and cover all of it at some you know at some points and so it goes it goes deep with what the budgets are doing to you know to affect different teams performances what about a a system like you know because we have this new relegation system in place now so we're effectively ranking them like uh, nba teams are ranked over the course of a season you see in the american sports they have draft pick so the bottom ranked team for the season gets first draft pick so i I can't remember that belgian kid he's like 16 everyone's calling him the new remco remco's not even remco yet and now there's a new remco which also blows my mind (laughs) but there's like this 16 year old who's meant to be blowing it up over in belgium so like the bottom ranked world tour team gets first choice on the new kids coming through you reckon something like that could work yeah and like i guess in that situation you can do what nba teams do as well so if you if you get the number one draft pick and you pick that guy you can decide to keep him or you can decide to sell him yeah and then go okay we're going to actually sell him for three million euros and we're going to sign two bike riders or three bike riders for a million euros each and bulk the team that way also like uh, i have having a conversation the other day with someone about trading like you know if, if there was like a trading window where you could you could trade bike riders from one team to another we talked about the loan system as well that they do in american sports or in um english and in, in football that wouldn't work we just decided but like you could do yeah like even trade like trading trade bike riders mid-season we need to perform at the welter we haven't got a guy that can perform at the welter let's see if we can buy such and such from such and such team for for one month that'd be awesome mm. Because we were talking off air about Eddie Dunbar, who's moving over to your team for next season, even though you won't be there. But like, there's a rider who didn't get a Grand Tour this year with Ineos, yet he won Copia Bartolet and Tour of Hungary. Like to bring him across to a smaller team who's struggling with relegation, and he can potentially get you, you know, a stage win or similar in the Vuelta, and then Ineos take him back next year because you know they're struggling to develop the next you know, Jonas or Pogaccia or Remco, they haven't quite got that yet. Maybe Dunbar is that, but he's just missing that experience. Mm. Yeah, like I'm sure that like, you know, there'd be people listening listening out there saying that's not going to work. But yeah, there's there'd be a, a million little intricacies to it. But there's I think it would be possible in some ways. I mean it would be weird to say, okay, we'll give you we'll give you Dunbar for a month, but any of us is at the same race competing against you and they're going, yeah. Oh we shouldn't have given you that guy now. We want him back before the end of the race. <laughs> um but like you know, there'd be ways, I'm sure there'd be ways, there'd be smarter people than you and I that we could, could probably work out how that would work. Or you get that weird dynamic like you have at Worlds where you're like, hold on, why is that Italian lad pulling for a world final for 4K to go? Yeah. So in a world, let's imagine that cycling does work like that and also imagine that you've got a time machine. Where would you, Sam, transfer yourself to for a lone season? <laughs> Nowhere, man. Nah. I, I, stayed, I stayed at Greenwich for 10 years for a reason. Um, I loved it here. I loved it. Loved in this team. It's been part of. I've been part of the development in the team, and the team's been part of the development in me. Um, it's always been good fun. You know, we've uh, had some good success along the way. I don't think, in hindsight, I would have traded myself anywhere. Fair answer. Fair answer. To finish up, because I know uh, some listeners will have heard your podcast, but others won't. Like the podcast is just how much you enjoy doing it because it's it's a laugh a minute over there. Like I was listening to, I think it was the episode two three back where you announced your retirement. And Dan Jones was trying to diagnose some skin cancer on himself with an app that he downloaded. <laughs> it reminded me of a time I crashed over in the States in a criterium and I broke my collarbone. 
and I was fighting the idea of having to pay crazy money in one of these US medical rooms to get it diagnosed. So I downloaded an app on the iPad that was like a 99 cents x-ray machine and you take a photo <laughs> off your collarbone, you send it off to someone and they go, yeah, yeah, that's bust me. And it comes back. But it, there's some crack over on the podcast, like how much are you enjoying doing that? And is it something that's serious or is it just, you know, a couple of lads basically having a beer and you decided to hit record? Yeah, I love it. I have some, I have a ball doing it. Um, I'm still waiting for the day that we get in trouble for something, but I don't think, I think we're pretty good. Like we, I guess for those who haven't listened to it, it's pretty loose-lipped and I think a lot of cycling podcasts follow the <laughs> same mould and, you know, like those cycling podcasts that follow the same mould, credit to them, they probably have a hell of a lot more listeners than us. Ours is probably quite a niche market, but it's something that I always wanted to do. Why don't I, why don't, I'll rephrase it. I never wanted to do a cycling podcast, like a mainstream cycling podcast. It never really interested me. So we started the Social Distance Podcast and initially we were like really resistant to doing anything about cycling. We soon realized, well, it's two professional bike riders and, and Dan, who's pretty, you know, well-averse to cycling, professional cycling as well. We've got to do something about cycling. So we, we brought cycling in and it became a cycling podcast in some ways, but just super loose lips, super relaxed, no preparation. We swear, you know, we walk the plank sometimes with some things, but like, <laughs> it's just who we are as people. We're relaxed, we're fun-loving guys and so I really enjoy doing it. So I think, I guess in some ways it's serious. Like it wasn't to start with because we had no idea what podcast podcast world was even about or what, what how far we could go with anything. Um, and I'm sure we're, you know, we're still a pretty small fish in the podcast world, but we're getting more serious about it. And we're putting more time and effort into it now. And we've got merchandise for sale now and doing all sorts of other little things. So, you know, the ultimate goal for us is to continue to try to grow it over the course of the next one or two years and, and see see what it's like. But I mean it, it's still not it's not our job, obviously. We've got to put more time into into our actual paying jobs. But yeah, it's 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 fun. It's good fun and relaxed and everything. But yeah, there, there, there's definitely a motivation to see if we can get it to get a bit bigger. Good stuff. And this is this is a last one for me and I appreciate this is going to be um a real kind of abrupt right turn. This is a sort of like personal ongoing project of mine. So hear me out. It's it's trying to understand how I think about Lance Armstrong, right? And you raced with Lance for a year um, at Radio Shack. And I just want to know what he's like because I just can't... He he just pops up left, right and centre just in my work as a journalist here and there. And every time I kind of... I just have these conflicting kind of feelings about him. And I'm just always really interested to know, like, what was it like? being around a bloke like that. Is he a good dude or not? Should I hate him or should I kind of forgive him? I don't hate him, if that helps. <laughs> That's um, a good start, yeah. <laughs> obviously, I didn't race with him in the in the era. And I think he was probably, you know, he sounds like he treated some people, you know, not so not so kindly back then. Uh, but when I did race with him in, in Radio Shack, and I, and I had a bit to do with him in Trek Livestrong in 2009 because that was his team. He started that team. He was... I think he was pretty different to what I heard about him in the in the past. You know, he was coming back to try to win the Tour de France, but he was also, you know, coming back to, you know, promote this charity and all this stuff like that. And he treated me really well. He always backed me up if I was uh, if I needed help. I did a couple of races with him. I did a couple of training camps with him. Had some fun on the mountain bike with him. And uh, even when I crashed out of the Tour de France in 2020, you know, my first and only Tour de France and crashed out of that and broke my wrist and he sent me a message to, you know, say like chin up mate like bad luck so yeah my my experiences with him are, are good and you know he was 
I was, I was, I was a young dude watching him win a Tour de France. And so like everybody, he was Lance Armstrong had this aura about him just from watching him on TV. And then from blind fate, I ended up racing on the same team as him. I was like, how the hell did this ever happen? Um, so I guess I was kind of starstruck in some ways as well at that time. But I think I, I don't know. I think man, he raced in an era where, like, let's be honest, every single person in the bike race was on the gear. It wasn't an, um, he wasn't the only one doing it. Maybe the way he bullied people and mistreated people in those times were, you know, pretty unacceptable and would be easy to hate a guy that did that. But he seems to be, uh, you know, he's made a, made an effort over the last five or six years to make amends to a lot of those people and really acknowledge his mistakes. And I don't know, it's up to you, I guess, if you forgive him or not. But <laughs> I'm sure he doesn't really care either way. <laughs> no, I, I think, Joe, you know what? On the list of people he's worried about, I'm pretty low down. I hope I'm not right at the bottom. But no, that's, yeah, that's a really, yeah, really interesting answer. And, you know, just also now from like, the podcast hat as well just like looking at him and being like bloody hell you go and do a podcast even that's <laughs> even that's really good yeah oh, he's killing it absolutely killing it but no that's it's fascinating and yeah as i say it's like this is the wonderful thing about the job that we do is i can be a proper fanboy and i can ask dumb questions like that to professionals like you and get an interesting answer so thank you for entertaining me on that one no worries it's probably a question i would have answered a couple of years ago but um yeah, when is this going out? Can you yeah. can you not put this podcast out till first of January next year? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Sam, just to finish up with a bit of an in joke. So it's as you transition from shit bloke, good rider to shit rider, good bloke. Best of luck from us at Cyclist Magazine Podcast. Thanks, mate. <laughs> nice one. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Sam Bewley, ladies and gents. Uh, a beautiful man. He's a big man. He's a tall man. He's a bearded man. And he also seems like a very happy man, which I think I've detected a few times when you and I, Anthony, have talked to people who are stopping cycling. I don't know what's, what's that about, but it seems like when you're heading into retirement or maybe moving over into a semi-retirement in the gravel scene, everyone seems really happy. Is that your experience of cycling? It was that miserable as a pro that you couldn't wait to stop? I don't know. I, I think that's people's experience with making the decision, isn't it? Like you get somebody who's just spent 15,000 and they've bought just a clanger of a road bike. Like objectively, everyone goes, that was a bad decision. And you ask them, oh yeah, are you happy enough with that purchase? Delighted, delighted. Like people will defend <laughs> their decision to the death. I, I wonder, is that the case with pro cyclists going into retirement? Yeah, you've got to kind of fake it till you make it, right? And it would be, it would just be a bonkers change because I'm assuming that every day for basically the last 14 years, you've had somebody to pretty much do everything except wipe the proverbial because you've been working for a world tour team and they, even though we touched upon budgets and things, even the smallest teams have a swanny, have someone that fills your bead-ons for you, have someone that packs your lunch. Suddenly, you're going out there on your own, but also, I don't know, what what do you fill your day with? Because that's the other thing. number of hours you'd spend on a bike, that's, that's a selfish sport, as we've said before, but also it leaves you with a lot of free time if you stop doing it. <laughs> so I really, I hope Sam's got a few things lined up, but it sounds like he has with his podcast at least. Yeah, and you know, also pragmatically, like Svein was talking about last week, and it's the first person I've ever heard talking about. He's like, I, I missed the paycheck. Unapologetically, he said he missed the paycheck, that it was yeah, right. really good cash coming in for a long period of time. And then he kind of stopped and they don't make the Premier League cash where they can walk away and, you know, drive Ferraris and get houses in the Hamptons for the rest of their lives. It's maybe a few years saved if they're shrewd and they're one of the big stars, you know, maybe they can go the rest of their lives, but most of them have to reinvent themselves somehow. And that's doubly daunting. Yeah. And I think even now, barring a few exceptions that I can think of, like someone like Tom Boonen, where 
you know, back in Belgium, he was he was sponsored up to the hilt, quite apart from being a pro racer. And I reckon I've seen him. I've seen the car he drives. I've seen the house that he lives in, and I've seen the clothes he wears. He looks like he's doing all right and probably will be fine. But I do wonder, even at the top of the sport, how easy it is to actually live forever more, like a, you know, like we just said, like a football player could. You, you stop playing after having a career of 10 years on 250,000 euros a week, you're an idiot if you can't support yourself for the rest of your life. But I, I don't get don't get the sense it's the same as cycling, even at the top. Yeah, like it's not an easy transition. And then you take, we've obviously had outlier cases like Marco Pantani, which has been tragic post-retirement consequences. But on a softer scale than that, most of these guys and girls that retire, they have their identity entirely unidimensional, entirely hung up on I am James Bender, the cyclist. And then when that's taken away from you, it's like I am James Bender, the blank. Like what are you when you don't do the thing that you identify as? Yeah, exactly. And which is when you go and start a coffee shop, I think. That's 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 I'll be in there. Quite, yeah. <laughs> there you go. And then I want to say who is it? it was a someone was a llama farmer, a uh, famous cyclist. I want to say his um I can never say his name. Uh Abu Ab, Abu Jafarov. Go on, say it for oh, me. Oh, sprinter Demoladine Abu Jafarov? Yeah, I believe uh what he said became a llama farmer. It could be a vicious rumor. Big, you know, Magnus Baxter started a coffee company. Uh, there's, there's, I can't remember. Again, I'm going to find out the guy's name for the next episode. But he went on to become an estate agent somewhere in Ghent. So you know, it's a glamorous life after cycling. But as as we said, definitely, definitely check out Sam's podcast because that'd be a great direction for him to go because it is a pretty good one. Um, and I'm sure he's going to find plenty of other ways to fill his time and whisper it. I bet we do see him doing some gravel. I bet we see him. <laughs> they all do. They all do. You're even doing it. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Uh, James, welcome back to the hot seat. I'm hoping we'll have you. We'll have you for next episode. Indeed, and I'm hoping I'll see you again after uh, Badlands. So, yeah, on chance, and I hope that you can find a ninth place to stick a bottle on your bike. <laughs> Thanks for listening, folks. Chat soon. Mm-hmm.